Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. So I actually want to start out this morning, before we jump into verse number 18, I want to look again at last week's key verses, verses 16 and 17, because they are going to serve kind of like the anchor that we go back to throughout this walk through the book of Romans, okay? If you know what a legend on a map is, it kind of gives you, kind of tells you the scale of everything, kind of helps you to read that map and understand it. The verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1 are like the true north, that point us back and recalibrate us as we move through the book of Romans because it calls us back to the gospel. Look again at verses 16 and 17, and and this is something I would love as a church to commit to memory. So let's out loud, let's read this together. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So here again, Paul is saying that the most important thing is the gospel, and that the gospel is the most vital need for us, and again, that the gospel is the only answer to humanity's problems, and that God has provided that answer through the person and the work of Jesus Christ himself. You won't find the gospel anywhere but Jesus Christ. There are a lot of gospels, and I'm using air quotes there. There's a lot of little g gospels. There's a lot of good news that people try to cling on to. But the best news is that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, gave himself for us so that we could have salvation. Because without it, we would not have any hope. Remember last week when I said good news is good because of the bad news that it overwhelms? Right? You remember that? The next few chapters, we're really going to have to bear down and remember that. That the gospel is good news because it overwhelms bad news. Because for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at pretty much nothing but bad news. And you're like, oh man, that's great. I'm glad I came to church for this. This is what is going to make the gospel so beautiful. The carnage and the nastiness and the ugliness of what we're getting ready to look at for the next several weeks is what makes verses 16 and 17 so beautiful. And it makes the Jesus that we worship and the God that we serve so amazing. It's what makes grace so amazing as well. In my Bible... What we see here is the the, the title of this series has been the gospel unfiltered. Well, for us to have an unfiltered gospel, we also need to have an unfiltered reality of where we are and what makes that gospel so good. And the bad news is this, and this is the reality. Humanity is drowning in sin and guilt and the shame of our sin. We are drowning in it. We're not even treading water. We are drowning in it without hope. It's not a pretty picture. In my Bible, if you, I, have the, I have the Christian Standard Bible, and in my Bible, the headings of it says, in verses 18 through 25, is the guilt of the Gentile world. And then it moves on to idolatry, to depravity of humanity, and God's righteous judgment in chapter 2. The Jewish violation of God's law in verses 17 of chapter 2. And then you move over into chapter 3, it doesn't get much more pretty because it's the whole world, the whole enchilada is guilty before God. Say, wow, thanks for this encouraging message today. I'm so glad that I came here to be shamed and told about how bad I am. I'm not saying it. Remember, the reality, the bad reality is what makes the good message of the gospel so beautiful. See, none of these headings have a warm and positive tone to them. So this morning, now that we see where we're going, let's go ahead and go there. Look at verse number 18, if you would. We're only going to read verses 18 through 20, and then we'll look at some more of them as we move through the message. Begin verse 18, it says, For God's wrath... 
is revealed from the heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. So what we see, verse 18, God is wrathful. God is full of wrath towards us or towards our actions. And what we see is none of us have an excuse against it. Isn't this good news? Father, I thank you for this day and I pray this morning that you would speak through your word. Hinder me from saying anything that would hinder your message, God. And I pray that we would just become aware of your will for us. Give us a greater understanding of the gospel and the urgency of it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. God is full of wrath, verse number 18, verse number 20, and we are without excuse for it, okay? Uh, This week, I don't know how it is at your house, but when school is in session at our house, I can, I can only describe our mornings as organized chaos, okay? That's, that's about, and we're always right there on the tippy top of just descending into complete anarchy. At any given time, there's one little thing that can go wrong, and it just descends everything into complete and total destruction. We have this regimen that we follow, and everything's got to go just right, and very rarely does it ever go just right. I mean, we're getting breakfast ready. We're getting kids off to school. Stacy's getting off to the office. I'm trying to get a little bit of work done, and and all kinds of stuff is going on. Well, Thursday morning, we had that one thing that just threw a wrench into everything, and that was picture day. Why in the world? We've got phones now, people. We don't need to have school pictures, but we still do them anyway. So anyway, we had picture day, which meant hair had to be done and dresses had to be picked out. We couldn't just use the uniforms, and so that set us off. On top of that, Noelle is now in the school choir, and she had to get early. She had to be there 30 minutes early for her choir because they don't do it in normal hours. So we were having to get there early, plus get ready for pictures, but all this stuff, okay? So as we're running around, and I'm getting lunches together, and I'm getting breakfast together because Stacy has to get so early there, so I help out like the awesome loving husband I am. Anyway, okay, I'm being canonized as a saint in a couple weeks. Um, But all this stuff is going on, and so we're leaving, and we're barely getting out the door on time because if she's not there by 7.30, they go onto the choir room, and she has a hard time getting in and all this stuff. So I'm stressing out. That stress I was telling you about a little while ago, there's my stress. We, we, we get out, and we're, we're, rolling at, we're rolling down the road, and Noel goes, hey, did you get my breakfast? I was like, oh. Because we were too early, we were going to have to eat in the car. And I left her bagel sitting on, the, sitting on the island. And we didn't have time to turn back. And so, oh man, about that time that I'm looking at her saying, oh man, I am so sorry. And I'm feeling like the worst parent in the world because I'm going to be one of those that send my kid to school without breakfast. I run straight through a stop sign. The stop sign that I go past every day, I stop at every morning. I wasn't paying any attention to the stop sign. And it's one of those situations where I saw the stop sign right here at my periphery. And so I tried to slow down, but it was too late. So I might as well just own it and go straight on through. And I go, oh man, I ran that stop sign. She goes, it's the same stop sign that's been there every day. I was like, yes, Noel, I know that. I said, it just, I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't focused. She goes, well, that's okay. You didn't mean to. And she goes, so you wouldn't have really gotten in trouble, would you? I said, oh, yes, I would have. Had a police officer been there, I still would have gotten in trouble saying, you know, I didn't see the stop sign. Then he would have been like, you need to go for an eye test before you can have your license back, right? Um, So I explained to her that old concept that we all know that ignorance of the law is not a defense, right? It's not an excuse. So what we see here in our text this morning is kind of the same idea. God is full of wrath, 
And he begins to explain why he's full of wrath. And it says there that no one, all people, all people are without excuse. Now, when we look at this, we look at this and we see that humanity is guilty before a righteous God. A minute ago, or last week, we saw that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that all can be redeemed. But now we have to see what we can be redeemed from. And what we need to be redeemed for and why the gospel is so beautiful is because we're all so guilty. And we can't claim any excuse, the Bible says. None of us have a defense. None of us have an excuse. In verse number 18, it tells us that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and all unrighteousness of people. So this poses a question that many people ask me. I've asked myself, and it just seems, no, no, it doesn't matter how many times I speak, especially to our younger generation, to students and those who are kind of trying to work out all of justice and all of those things that are going on in their lives through their high school and college years. They ask, if somebody hasn't heard the gospel, why does God hold them accountable for their sin? It's that question. And it's that question that we're always asked. Does God really have a right to be angry? Maybe you've ever asked that question before. If somebody's never heard or if they don't know about God, do they have to be saved or will they still, are they still in danger of dying and going to hell? You see, it's a question. How can God show love and wrath at the same time? If God is so loving and God is so merciful, why is he so wrathful and why is he so jealous as well? How can God be angry if I don't know any better? How can I be angry if I don't know any better? Isn't Paul talking to the Gentiles here? And weren't the Gentiles kind of like the in the dark kind of people because they weren't raised like Jews knowing the law of God. And so all of this is brand new to them. So why is God holding even the Gentiles guilty? Matter of fact, how is it fair for God to hold anyone accountable for something that they've never had the chance to hear? And again, we still look at this truth that is, that is an uncomfortable truth. No matter if they haven't heard, no matter if they come from a culture that hasn't necessarily been steeped in Christianity or knowing about God, all are still without excuse. We have to ask that question, why in the world? This means the religious, the irreligious people, those who have heard the gospel and those who haven't heard the gospel will all stand before God one day and the only excuse they can offer is Jesus Christ or their faith in God. And if they don't have that and you say, they didn't know, how can they give it? They're still without excuse. If I've never heard about him, why don't I have an excuse when I stand before him? Aren't I innocent of the things that I don't know? If the gospel is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes, how can I be judged if I never hear the gospel? The truth is that we are all still without excuse. In verse number 18, again, it tells us why we're without excuse. Because our sin nature is what bends us away from God. It says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against what? Godlessness and unrighteousness. What I love about this is he never says against the godless and the unrighteous. There's a big difference. God is never against us. He is always for us. Even in our sin, he is for us. What he is against is our godlessness, our unrighteousness. He's against the actions, the attitudes. And godlessness is simply the wrong attitude towards God. That this poisons our vertical relationship with him. Viewing everything through the lens of ignoring God. Even in cultures that have chosen to ignore God. Some may say I'm victim of that. But it is a godlessness that lives inside of us because of that sin nature. It's an unrighteousness. Is that wrong vertical relationship with God then poisons all of our horizontal relationships with everybody else. It poisons everything, and Paul is going to paint a very ugly picture of how we poison our relationships with everybody else. 
And I love what Dr. Tim Keller says, and he and Dr. and Dr. J.D. Greer, along with Dr. Adrian Rogers, I used a lot of their information when putting this, when putting this message together, because there's a lot of research. If you are a nerd, you're going to love this message, especially if you like science. But you see, our sin nature makes us try to ignore the truth. Look what it says again in verse number 18. God's wrath is against our godlessness and our unrighteousness of the people who by their unrighteousness, here's what our unrighteousness causes us to do. It causes us to try to suppress the truth. To suppress the truth. What this means is the truth is all around, but we choose not to see it. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, instead of being loving, humble, and truthful, we tend to be self-centered, proud, and manipulating because our godlessness and our unrighteousness in us begins to take over. This word saying suppress the truth means that we have tried to push something down by force. Okay? Kind of like... Kind of like if you try to push something down and try to hold it down, but it keeps trying to rise to the top all the time. These attitudes of godlessness and unrighteousness make us push that down. See, suppressing the truth is not the same as being ignorant of the truth. When we ask that question sometimes, what if people have never heard or what if people don't know? We always think, well, that means they're ignorant. But what the Bible is telling us here is that ignorance of sin doesn't exist. Suppression of the truth is what we're dealing with. Is that we know within our hearts there's this moral compass that God has put within us to know that what we're doing is wrong, to know that we're wronging some sort of moral code, yet we still choose to do that. We suppress the truth. Suppressing means that the truth is there, but you keep yourself from acknowledging it. It's almost like the, all the evidence that you need is right there in front of your face, but you willfully turn your eyes, your ears, and your mind away from it constantly. See, this, this is how I describe a Cubs fan. All the evidence that the fact that your team is terrible is right in front of you, but you continually say, maybe next year. You constantly do that. Just like that stop sign. It didn't matter that I didn't want that sign to be there. It didn't even matter that I forgot that it was there. It didn't even matter that I, that I just ignored it. It was still there, and I still broke the law. See, uh, I meant to bring them with me this morning, but have you ever seen those little boogie boards? You know, if you go to the beach or something, you get those little boogie boards. Well, before we went to the beach this summer, the girls bought these little boogie boards because they thought they were going to try to do some surfing on the waves and stuff. You know, these little boards that are about this big and this wide or something like that. They both got one. Those were a real treat to try to put in the, I don't know why we didn't buy them when we got there, but we bought them before we left. And so those were a real treat to try to track around in the back of the old SUV with all of our other luggage on the way down there, okay? But we get there, and, and the, the problem was it would have been great at the beach, but we went there during a tropical storm, which meant that, you know, in Florida, normally you get a, a few minutes of rain and then the rest of it is sunshine. Well, it reverses when it's a tropical storm storm, you get all rain and only a few minutes of sunshine. So we never really had the time to get to the beach. Every day we were like just running to the pool that was at our, that was at our condo and we would go in there. So the girls tried to use their boogie boards in the pool. You don't use a boogie board in a pool, you know, and especially for what they were trying to use it for. They wanted to surf on the pool. There's no waves in the pool. I don't care how many times Big, big Daddy jumps in the water and tries to make waves. There's still not going to be waves big enough for them to ride their boogie board. So what they tried to do, they tried to stand on the boogie board and I watched them. And I watched them for hours on end trying to stand on the boogie board. And every time, guess what happens? They fall off. Whew, that thing shot right out of the air. Why? Every time they were trying to suppress that board that was meant to float above the water. That's what happens when we try to suppress the truth of God. The truth of God, we try to continually push it down. We try to ignore it. We try to manage it. We try to tell it what it needs to do. But it will always come to the surface. That's what the verse is telling us. God has wrath, and we are without excuse because his truth is all around us. It is all within us, and it is everywhere. 
Always there. So we are without excuse because we continue to try to suppress the truth. We are not ignorant of it. We try to suppress it. Here's what Dr. Keller puts it this way. He says, we know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. You get that? We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. There's a lot of things that we are willfully ignorant about, but you can't claim ignorance when you are willfully turning a blind eye to the truth that is in front of you. Maybe the truth is uncomfortable. Maybe it's inconvenient. Maybe it's something that is going to take us to hardship that we don't want, so we try to avoid it. But when we subconsciously choose not to know, whether we choose not to know or not is not the issue. It's the fact that you had the opportunity to know, and there is no excuse. Here's a couple of things I want to look at this morning. The title of the sermon is simply, We Don't Know, But We Really Do. We don't know. We say we don't know, but we really do. See, number one, what we have to understand from this passage, and these are going to be some positive statements here in a very negative text of Scripture. God wants to be known, and he has given ways for all to know him. God wants to be known. You see, he's not some playing some game of cosmic hide-and-seek with humanity. He's there and he says, I want to be known and I can be found. Everything, and the truth of the, of the matter is that everything that we see around us and those things that are even within us point us to God and our need for him. Romans chapter 1 verse 19, look on in our text. It says, since we are without excuse, since what can be known about God is what? is evident among them because God has shown it to them. That, that phrase there, evident among them, means that a word among means in the midst of them. So what it's literally saying is the evidence of God is literally with inside of us. He has placed inside of us, what has he placed inside of us? His very image. So we are different from the monkeys and we are different from the dogs and, the, and we're definitely different from the cats. We're different from all the animals because we have the ability to have emotions. We have the ability to have moral judgment. That's God's image placed inside of us and it points us to him. And then it says God has shown it to them. God has shown us who he specifically is as well. God has revealed himself to us both in us and all around us. Genesis says we're made in his image, and there's image, there's the, the evidence of God's handiwork all around us through creation. You see, God can be known through the world around us. Look at verse number 20. It says, For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. See what he says? He says, It's clearly seen since the creation of the world. And then it says, being understood through what he has made. Saying that we can understand God through what we see of creation around us. What we are seeing here is that God has revealed himself to everyone through the order of the universe and all that's around us. In Psalm chapter 19, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare his glory and the expanse of the universe proclaims the work of his hands. See, this is what we call in theology, general revelation. It doesn't necessarily include Jesus, but it does show the power and might of God because he, we're here. The fact that we're here shows the fact that there is a God who put us together and created us. It's general revelation. That I can look at the trees, I can look at the skies, I can look at space, and I can look at the universe, and I have to come to some conclusion with inside of myself that there's someone, something, some force bigger than me that put me here and put all of this here and me in it. See, philosophers and scientists have wrestled with this notion, and you can see the efforts through philosophy and through, and through secular society 
to suppress the truth like Paul said in Romans. All the way back in the ancient days, even before Paul came to be, there was this guy named Aristotle who started this cosmological argument of philosophy. He said, why there is, he questioned this. He says, why is there something rather than nothing? And where did the original something come from to turn nothing into something? You get that? Even all the way back then, they were saying, there's something, so it had to come from something, not from nothing. So if all of this began billions and billions of years ago with a bang that created organic matter that started the process of evolution, then where did the materials for that big bang come from? Okay, if there's a big bang, where did the rocks come from? Or where did the matter for that great explosion come from? Eventually, something has to come from something. Nothingness doesn't just explode into somethingness. Okay? So in his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, an atheist philosopher, admits that there is a problem with evolution's theory. He says that Darwin's theory works for biology, but it doesn't work for cosmology and where we look at how we came to be. And he said this, he says, cosmology, the world of cosmological thinking is still waiting for its Darwin to explain how we got here. In other words, he thinks that while we have explained how life took shape on the earth, he admits that they still have no idea where life itself or the materials that produce life came from. So Dawkins finishes his wrestling by saying, we need a theory as to why anything exists because if it is self-evident that nothing times nobody can't equal everything. Get that? Nothing times nobody can't equal everything. But don't worry, he said, one day we'll find it. Now we see faith being injected into science. Right? But science is supposed to prove all things to where we don't need faith. This is an example of blind, hopeful leap of faith. Again, trying to suppress that boogie board, trying to stand on the truth, trying to manipulate it for what it is, but the truth is going to continually pop up and hit us right in the faith, in the face. There's the cosmological argument, then there's also the teleological argument of philosophy. And the teleos, that word teleos comes from the original language, which means our purpose for being here. Again, God is saying, I have shown you who I am because I've put with inside of you some things that you hunger and thirst after. And I've also put around you evidence that points to me. See, not only do we question how we got here, but we also want to know why we're here. Why are we here? We crave to understand our purpose. See, part of understanding our purpose for being here is understanding the complex order that has to exist for us to remain here. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. And if, and if, you're, if, you're, if you're nerdy, right, Ryan, you always, every, every, about every sermon you tell us that you're a nerd, right? So here we go. It's going to be fun, all right? Scientists say that life on earth depends on multiple factors that are so precise that if it were off by just a little bit, life on earth could not exist. And they call it the Goldilocks principle, right? You know how, remember that old nursery rhyme where Goldilocks, too hot, too cold, oh, this is just right? Remember that? We are a bunch of Goldilockses and we don't even realize it. We have to have everything just right or else we would die. For example, the makeup of our atmosphere. Our atmosphere is made of 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 0.5% argon, and 0.3% carbon dioxide. Okay, there's a quiz later, so I hope you're taking notes on that. If some of those levels were off just slightly, for example, if the level of oxygen dropped by 6%, we would all suffocate and die. And if it rose by 4%, our planet would have so much oxygen that it, would, that it would react with the heat coming from the sun and the ultraviolet rays and we would turn into one giant fireball. So we live in this oxygen percentage of 78% and we have been doing that since the history of mankind. And it hasn't variated. 
Interestingly, when you look at other planets, those things jump all over the place all the time. I wonder how it happens on Earth that we stay the same way. Or if the CO2 were just a little higher, let's say 3%, or just a little bit lower, say 0.1%, the earth would either become an oven or have no atmosphere at all, and then we would all die. Or this, the water molecule is the only molecule whose solid form as ice is less dense in its liquid form than it is in its, than it is in its liquid, which means that when it freezes, it floats. Everything else, when it freezes, it sinks, but just water, when it freezes, it floats. Have you ever thought what would happen to the oceans if ice was like everything else and it just sank? If the oceans froze from the bottom up, there would be no sea life, there would be no plant life within the ocean, and that would mess up the ecosystem of things and we would all die. Or the distance of the earth from the sun. If we were 2% closer to the sun, if our orbit just brought us in 2% closer by accident at one point, we would be too hot for water to exist. Everything would become a sauna and guess what? We would all die. And then there's the tilt of the earth. If the tilt of the earth from 23.5 degrees just was off a little bit, then we would have complete disaster when it came to our temperatures and our tides and all of those things. You probably never thought about it, but if the earth was not tilted, the temperatures would be extreme and we'd all die. One more for fun. We've learned that if Jupiter wasn't the size that it is and in the orbit that it is, the astronomers predict that there would be 10,000 times the number of asteroids that strike here on Earth because Jupiter sucks all of those in before they come to us. It's kind of like a basketball, big center in basketball setting a pick for the guard to move around it. Do you see the intense order and the intense detail that needs to take place for us to exist like we do? Yet the idea that order came from chaos it's, it never happens in nature. You never see it replicated in science. Chaos always comes from order. Chaos, order always descends into chaos. Just like I was telling you about our mornings. One little thing went off and everything else messed up. Your life is probably like that. Your schedule is probably like that. We see that happen in the universe all around us. And all that complexity brought into order exists no matter how far your telescope reaches to see. But if you pull out your microscope and begin to look at things on the atomic level, we see the same thing. Even the most, DNA strand, most basic DNA strands are incredibly complex. And even so, that Francis Collins, who's the leader of the Human Genome Project, said this. He said, how could a cosmic accident ever result in something of this digital elegance in a DNA strand? The head scientist at the Human Genome Project says, I have no idea how it came to be. I have no idea how it has such order to it. It's like thinking that an explosion in an ink factory could somehow land on paper and produce all of the works of Shakespeare. Or taking all of the components of a watch and shaking them up and having a watch come out. The chances are infinitesimal. Even the late Stephen Hawking, who was noted to be one of the smartest men of his generation and multiple generations, said in one of his later books, he said this, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many precise ratios, like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. One scientist said this, that the greatest miracle of all time without any close second is the existence of life on our planet. You may say, well, maybe we're just lucky. 
You know, in this universe is so big, you had to get it right one time. The chances had to be right to get it one time. Scientists say that the odds of a planet like Earth existing are so astronomical that to think that all of this just happened defies common sense. You have to take a leap of blind faith to think that all of this could just somehow accidentally happen. It's like tossing a coin every second and having it come up heads every time for 10 billion years on end. So yeah, you can speculate that this part of the galaxy was just really, really lucky, but it's the best and easiest explanation for what we see is if there's this much order and if there's this much complexity, there has to have been a designer. See, design, like what we are talking about, doesn't happen unless you have an intricate designer that knows way more than we do already, who didn't take the time to completely mess up all the time and experiment. Oops, messed that one up. Let's start again. It took an all-knowing designer to put all this together. It takes an anti-God bias to arrive at the thought that we just exist like this. It does. And again, that's what we're coming to. Suppressing the truth. God's wrath is revealed from humanity because of godlessness and unrighteousness. And because of that, we are without excuse. See, we know, but we don't know because we chose not to know. God can be known also through our desires. He puts within us all kinds of longings and cravings to know our purpose, to know why we're here. C.S. Lewis says it this way, a baby feels hunger. There's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel desire. There's such a thing as sexual fulfillment. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, we have all kinds of desires that we can find fulfillment for in this world, but we still have that longing for desire that our spirit continually compels us to find the answer to, and that is what God put with inside of us. That desire that you can't seem to fill here on earth is that God-given desire to show you you're not made for this world. You're made for his kingdom. And you come to him and you will find purpose and you will find answers. In 2009, a British journalist named A.N. Wilson, he made some waves when he converted from atheism to Christianity. And he said this, in the Western world, we've been told that only stupid people can believe in Christianity. But as a matter of fact, it's atheism that is a dry, lifeless creed and totally irrational. See, atheism says that we're just a collection of chemicals, that it has no answer to whatsoever to the question of how this animated sack of accidental chemicals that we call a person can be capable of love or heroism or poetry or the deeper things of life. If we're just a bunch of chemicals, then why do we have a will? Why do we have thoughts? Why do we have questions? if we're just some software program being played out. See, God can be known through our desires that we have. God is also known through our sense of reality. The very fact that I felt guilty for running that stop sign or the very fact that you feel guilty when you mess up or you feel mad at yourself when you make a mistake points to the fact that we know that things aren't right. We know that things are broken and it points to our need for a God who puts things back together and makes beauty from ashes. So the question is, does God really have a right to be wrathful? Don't I have an excuse before God if I don't know? What about the portions of the world who haven't been reached yet with the gospel? God has given them the heavens, the cosmos that point to their need for a God. The second thing is, God wants to be known and he's made every attempt for us to, for us to know him. The second thing is we have tried to suppress or ignore all the ways that God attempts to be known. God made every attempt to be known, but we keep suppressing every attempt. 
Again, we know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. We keep on pushing that boogie board down, and the result of that is unnatural. I'm telling you, watching Natalie and Noel continually fight with that day after day after day after day, trying to get it right, and watching that boogie board fly up every time, I'm like, when are you just going to give up and own up to the fact that you can't do it? But they kept on. Every single time, they realized, every single time, they're like, no, I'm going to get it this time. I'm going to figure it out this time. Look at verse number 21. See, the suppression of our truth leads to some dangerous things. The first dangerous thing it leads to is arrogance. It says, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude to God. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Again, all of that knowledge, all that suppression of truth led to arrogance. So what happens when we know God, but we choose not to glorify him for his power and his majesty, and we refuse to show gratitude to him for all the signs pointing us to inviting him and knowing him more? We spiral into this humanistic, me-centered universe where I am God, where I am God. And this was the thing behind the fall. I don't want to follow God anymore, so Adam and Eve ate the fruit. I want to be like God. I want to be God myself. Suppression of the truth always will lead to arrogance. I don't need the truth, or I have a better truth, or I can come up with a different truth. I can make my own truth. I can write my own destiny. We want to make the rules. We want to take God's glory for ourselves and use everything around us and in us to bring attention to ourselves rather than to him. See, we want to be the center of our story. We want to be the one making our rules, and that's the point of it all. When we become the point of existence, it becomes a very sad existence. But when God is the point and bringing honor and glory to him becomes the point, we realize that we are existing in this point in history for a holy purpose and it gives meaning to our lives. Bigger than just us. See, when we say, I know better, my way is better, my will is supreme, my desire is the great pursuit of my life, then we get in trouble. And see, this is nothing new. Every generation of history supposes itself to be more enlightened and sophisticated than the generation before them. And every generation has always thought they were more enlightened and sophisticated than God. The Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, <laughs> the U.S. Every major people group, they've always stood saying, I know more than God. I know more than God. In all our wisdom, what happens is we become foolish by denying him. And then we have to commit to denying him in order to make sense of it all. And that boogie board just keeps coming to the surface every single time we say, I know more than God. God says, that's fine. You can suppress it all you want to, but the truth is going to just keep being there. See, God doesn't have to lower the boom. This is what we're going to see and just say, God doesn't lower the boom to show he's in charge. The truth is just there and you can't fight it. You can't fight it. <laughs> This is why a lot of the great atheist intellects of the last hundred years who have become Christians, and there have been several of them, like T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, C.E.M. Joe, C.S. Lewis, A.N. Wilson. Notice all the smart guys, they always just go by initials in their names. They've all said this, what brought them to faith was not some new argument or evidence about God. It was finally coming to a place where they just admitted to themselves that there always has been a God and they were just trying to ignore it to begin with. See, the boogie board kept trying to come to the surface. It kept coming to the surface, and they just got tired of ignoring it. Eventually, the girls decided, I'm done with the boogie board. I'm not using it in the pool anymore. Eventually, they just realized, it's going to keep on coming up. It's going to keep fighting me. It's, I'm just not going to succeed at this. And so the girls eventually said, here, put the boogie board outside the pool. 
See, our suppression leads to arrogance, but then our arrogance will then lead to idolatry. Look at what it says in verse number 23. It says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So what do we do in all of our arrogant wisdom? We say, I'm so good on my own, I must create my own God. And see, religion and worship, instead of becoming something that is a life source for me, it just becomes a hobby or a pastime. See, when God is not God, worship is more about what I do and what I get out of it than what I'm putting into it. So what happened? We don't need God anymore, so let's create our own gods for fun that can serve us. Instead of looking at creation and worshiping the creator, we took the created things and we crafted our own gods in the image of the things that had been created. We changed the object of worship into something that we could control. And what did we use to depict these gods? Well, we used the image of man, created Zeus or Aphrodite or all these people that had man-like images and said, well, they were gods. We used animals like Baal and all of these and, and the golden calf and elements of the created world and worship the sun or worship the moon like the Egyptians did. The world was, that was created by the one and then animals and elements of the created world. We used all the things of the created world that were in front of us instead of worshiping the creator that put all of those things in front of us. All the false gods of human history have one thing in common though. They were all created by us for our purpose, right? You say, well, hold on for a second. I, I've watched plenty of, you know, Greek movies and I've read Greek tragedies and I, I know a little bit about mythology and stuff. They served them. They believed that they were in control. Yeah, they did. But you ever notice why they wanted to serve them? So that they would then be required to do what they wanted. And that's the way we treat God a lot of times. This is when we even make God himself our own idol. When we look at God and say, God, I can manipulate you for what I want, then we have made even God himself an idol. And that's exactly what we do. We take the creator of the universe and try to put him inside our own universe that we build for ourselves, where my glory is the chief target rather than the glory of God. See, in our Christian church, we may say, well, I don't have like, I don't have like statues at home that I bow down to and all this stuff, but let me ask you about your prayer life. Let me ask you how your prayer life sounds. Does it sound like this? God, I need this or I want this. God, if you will just do this for me, then I will do this for the rest of my life. If you don't do this, I'm going to be mad at you and I'll punish you by refusing to believe in you and then I'll question your existence. See, that's not a God that has been respected. That is a God that has been employed by me to do what I want. So now I'm God and he's just my servant. But you see, the God of heaven, Yahweh, doesn't serve anyone. We serve him. See, prayer life like this proves that we're making an idol of even God. We're making him a mascot for our glory rather than the other way around. So, suppression leads to arrogance. Arrogance leads to idolatry. And then idolatry will also lead to catastrophe. So, one of the mantras of secularism is that we're beyond a sovereign being who tells us what's best for us. We know and we're still finding out what's best for us and how best to be human as we progress and as we evolve and any mention of God or biblical principles is looked at as restrictive like God is just some big spiritual ball and chain. You see, when God gets in the way of my desires, then he's not needed anymore. But here's what Paul says in verse number 24. Therefore, God delivered them over. Some of the saddest words you'll find. God delivered them over to the desires of their heart, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded even among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served what was created instead of the creator who is praised forevermore. 
See, here what we see is God is not restrictive of us. He's respectful. Do you catch that? Man kept saying, we don't want you. We keep suppressing the truth. We want to ignore you. And what did he say? What did it say? He delivered them over. And you're going to find that phrase three more times in this passage. And this is the definition of where the wrath of God comes from in verse number 18. See, we see that word wrath and it goes, we go, ooh, I don't like that. Because when we think of wrath, we think of aggressive anger that's been personal. But the wrath of God is not aggressive anger towards us. The wrath of God is simply defined as God taking his hand off of us. See, what does he said? Every time it says he delivers them over. And the process of our fallen nature just takes place. It just takes place. When we suppress the truth, we end up falling into trouble. Every time I watch the girls try to stand on that boogie board, guess what happened? They fell off. Sometimes they were really close to the edge of the pool, and I was worried they were going to bust their heads on it. And I was wondering if it would knock some sense into them to stop. You know? Every time we try to suppress the truth, it leads to negative efforts, or it leads to negative effects. Look at verse, at verse 23. It says, they change the glory of God for images. Every time, God, and what we have to get from this, when God delivered them over, God never had to put the hammer down, okay? God never looks down from heaven, and, the reason, and God's wrath didn't fall from heaven by God saying, all right, I'm going to create all these problems and throw them at you. No, he just removed his hand. And he delivered them over. He said, okay, if this is what you want, this is what you can have. And what you can have leads to all of these other things. See, idolatry and arrogance will always lead to catastrophe. Verse 23 says they exchanged the glory of God for images. And so he just exchanged them over to disgraceful, disgraceful passions. They dishonored God, so God let them dishonor themselves. They didn't see fit in verse number 28 to acknowledge God, so God gave them up to a corrupt and debased mind. You see, this is what we're going to look at a little bit more in depth next week because we're coming to a stopping point this morning. But suffice it to say, we still see this playing out just like a map in our society today and in every culture that we see around us. When we begin to try to suppress the truth of God, we always follow this path. And God doesn't have to throw some sort of judgment. God just removes his hand of protection and delivers us over. Sometimes when we say, God, give me what I want, he says, okay. He did it with Israel when they wanted Saul as a king. And it didn't go well. We've asked for God, you know, God, give us this, give us this, give us that. And he's given, even as the church sometimes, we'll ask God, God, give me this. Give me money. Give me, give me power. Give me, give me all the things. He says, okay, but it's not going to lead somewhere good. God is enough and has to be enough. Doesn't next week sound fun? We're going to look at all this and how it plays out into our society and how our cultures and how we end up, how it, honestly, racism, sexual identity issues, all the things that we see going on in our world right now are all a result of what we're seeing here in our text. Every last bit of it, and that's what we're going to look at next Sunday. But I don't want to end on just a negative thing. I want to end on something positive. And point number three is simply this, and this is our conclusion. That even though God has made a way for us to be, for him to be known, and he continues to do that. And even though we continue to suppress the truth, God in his mercy just keeps pursuing us with his grace. He just keeps pursuing. He just keeps pursuing. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. This is what we earn. We are without excuse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you look at our text, it begins to look like God has every reason to be wrathful. Right? 
every single reason to be wrathful. We have no excuse for getting the God question wrong. He's given us so much evidence. He's given us so many chances and opportunities. He's placed within us a hunger for him that we choose on our own to ignore and direct our own paths. God has every reason to be wrathful, but in his wrath, he never gives up. He continues to pursue us. He gave us creation. He gave us a hunger inside of us. And when we still resisted, God gave us his son. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to close by sharing this verse with you out of Isaiah chapter 53. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned to our own way. Do you get that? We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. When every one of us have stood before the Lord and stand before the Lord without excuse... And God is perfectly vindicated in his wrath. In his mercy, he sent Jesus Christ to take the wrath on him. Did you catch that? All the efforts of us suppressing the truth all the time, pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down. He keeps throwing truth our way. And then when we were the blindest that we could be, he put his son on a cross. And he said, look unto him and be saved. We were all like sheep gone astray. We all did our own thing. We all thought we were cool. We all thought we figured it out. What was interesting is finally, the last day that we were on vacation this summer, we finally got a day of sun. So we finally got to go to the beach. And so the girls, they had actually just left their boogie boards at the pool because they were done with them. And I said, hey, you guys want to take the boogie boards down to the beach? And Noelle went with me down to the beach and I watched her as she took the boogie board out there and I saw her all of a sudden have fun with it because she was riding the waves on it. See, the point of the boogie board was never to try to suppress it and hold it under the water. The boogie board was never going to be useful that way. The boogie board was always going to be useful when you held on to it so that you could ride the waves that came. And that's the gospel. That's the truth of God. The truth of God is never meant for us to manage and manipulate and make work for us. It's meant for us to cling to so that we can ride through the world around us, broken as it is. So he sent Jesus Christ and he said, cling to me, come to me, all who are labor, all who are wearied, all who are tired, cling to me and I'll give you rest. We try to fight it, we try to suppress it, and Jesus keeps coming back with the truth. Jesus keeps coming back with an arm stretched out. The question is, have you grabbed it? Or are you going to keep on trying to suppress it? If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, come to him today. If you're watching today, I know we've gone long. Oh, but God, please come to him. Come to him. Stop trying to suppress the truth. Rest in him and let him work it out. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.